Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We've got a really, really interesting interview for you today. We're talking with Shahid Batar from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, there was a really big Supreme Court ruling. Actually, there are several, several recently, but uh, the one we're going to talk about today is uh, from Carpenter versus the United States, and it has to do with cell phone location privacy. And uh, it really is a landmark case and a very important ruling, and it's a really, really insightful interview, and we cover all sorts of really great topics and uh, all the implications and so uh, let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into the interview. Hello, and with us today is Shahid Batar. He's the Director of Grassroots Advocacy at the EFF or the Electronic Frontier Foundation, one of our favorites. Uh, Shahid is a lawyer, musician, writer, and grassroots organizer. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kerry. All right, and so I asked you here today because we want to talk a little bit about this landmark Supreme Court decision uh, that was handed down on June 22nd, which is Carpenter versus the United States. Uh, and it has a lot to do with cell phone privacy, especially your location. Uh, so if you would, just kind of tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what, how, what EFS role was, uh, how the Carpenter case evolved, and uh, why this ruling was so important. Sure. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we submitted an amicus brief that is a friend of the court brief to the Supreme Court in, uh, in the Carpenter case. And we have been very excited by the case's result. I'll, in terms of the history, I'll I'll unpack it on two fronts, both the facts of the case before the court, uh, or the, the that were before the court, I should say, now that it's uh, issued its mm. decision. And then I'll also explain the sort of historical significance of the doctrine leading up to the case and how it, how it resolved it. So this case emerged from a series of robberies in the Midwest, Detroit and Ohio, in which a, uh, a team of cell phone robbers basically held up a series of radio shacks and T-Mobile stores. And it was in the wake of prosecutors gaining access to the cell site location information from his cellular phone provider uh, that his prosecution proceeded. He was ultimately convicted, and it was in the appeals on that conviction that this case emerged before the Supreme Court uh, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, was the counsel of record, and we at EFF, <clears throat> we at EFF, wrote an amicus brief that the court cited uh, in once by attribution and in two other places in in its opinion, basically making parts of our brief the settled law of the land. Mm. And what makes this case significant is. Uh, not just its narrow holding, which I will explain, but particularly its potential implications. So the narrow holding of this case is that if police want to gain access to cell site location information from cellular service providers, uh, essentially to construct the historical location information of a particular subscriber, now, after the Carpenter decision, police have to seek a judicial warrant based on probable cause. Uh, that was not the case before stemming from two cases dating back to the 1970s, the Supreme Court has long held, according to its third-party doctrine, that people who provide materials to a third party, like a telephone company, don't enjoy a reasonable expectation of privacy mm. in whatever it is that they shared. In this case, uh, limits the third-party doctrine, and it's that implication that could be so profound. You know, in the years since the Internet has become very... Uh, widely available and, and widely accessed, many corporate platforms have emerged as the gateways through which people access the internet. And the same thing is true of, of telecom providers in, in the cell service uh, context. The idea that by sharing data with these corporate providers who give us access to cellular service or the internet, uh, the idea that by giving those companies access to our data, we are effectively losing any opportunity to claim privacy over that information, I think is in increasing odds with the society that we live in. And thankfully, the Supreme Court recognized it, uh, exactly that, in, in, in limiting the third-party doctrine and limiting the damage that this judicially created doctrine in the 1970s can do to our contemporary privacy rights in the 21st century. Now, there was also another... Um uh, statute that was, I think, semi-applicable called the Stored Communications Act, and that was from 1986. How did that play into this? So the Stored Communications Act essentially allowed the government to gain access to historical cell site location information 
through a court order short of a judicial warrant. The Stored Communications Act has a uh, less demanding standard for government access to uh, cell site information. Specifically, the standard under the Stored Communications Act is that the government only has to show reasonable grounds that the material it's looking for is relevant and material to an ongoing investigation. That's very different than a probable cause judicial warrant. And there's a point in the opinion where the uh, Chief Justice talks about the remarkable significance of judicial warrants to the Republic. Uh, you know, he, he, he talks about how specifically the resistance to the general warrants that the British Crown preserved its right to, to access during mm -hmm. the colonial period was one of the original bases for the American Revolution. It's right. particularly ironic to reflect upon, you know, this decision came down just a few days before the July 4th <laughs> holiday, which invites us to reflect upon the nation's founding and the idea that we should not be at risk for the government arbitrarily gaining access to information about individuals that can be very revealing. That's baked into our Constitution, mm. and the you know it, it took the Supreme Court in this case to vindicate that principle as it pertains to the state of the world we encounter in, in with respect to cell phones and and corporate telecom providers uh, tracking the location of their users over time. Uh, but all that is to say that the Stored Communications Act. Uh, lessened the burden that the uh, government needed to undertake relative to the more demanding standard articulated in the Constitution of the United States, in the Fourth Amendment to it, and now upheld by the Supreme Court. All right. And so explain a little bit further, what are the, the functional differences between a court order and a, and a, and a judicial warrant? And in, in either case, can I I, I see maybe I've seen too many TV shows, but can I, you know, can I cherry pick my judge in either of these cases? Because I know that that's how sometimes law enforcement um, kind of, you know, they find a judge they like and they make sure they, they ask him when they want this permission. Is it does that play into this at all? To be honest, I'm not sure how the Stored Communications Act access to, to judges works. Uh, at the end of the day, a judicial warrant itself is not um, it's a demanding standard with respect to protecting private information because what it means is that the government can't unilaterally access uh, corporate records about the location of their particular subscribers. But just to be clear, a judicial warrant is not challenging for any legitimate investigation to secure. In fact, if anything, you know, when you read the opinion of this particular case, it's striking that so easily could the prosecutors have cured the defect if they just went through the process that the Constitution requires and gotten the warrant to then authorize their request of the information from the cell phone companies, this prosecution could have stood. But at the end of the day, hmm. uh, the prosecutors did not do that. The significance of the warrant requirement is the very same significance as judicial review. Now, you're right to press that the Stored Communications Act does require a court order of some kind, but the standard under which the court evaluates the request for a warrant is very significant. It's the difference between, uh, with the Stored Communications Act, mere relevance being sufficient versus under the Fourth Amendment's requirement, which the Supreme Court has now held applicable to historical cell site location information, the government has to prove that there is probable cause mm -hmm. to suspect that the information it is seeking is determinative with respect to a known crime. Uh, and those are very different things. You know, one can be hypothetical, one has to be much more grounded in, in, in reality. And ultimately, the biggest difference is the degree of skepticism that the judge is invited to apply. You know, the, the, the application for a search warrant is the only point before the government gets access to someone's information that there is an opportunity for an independent authority to examine the context. I mean, the warrant requirement, one reason it's so significant is because without it, you could effectively have uh, a potential mass surveillance regime. Uh, and warrants are particularly what prevent mass surveillance by forcing the government to demonstrate specificity between what it's seeking and what it's aiming to prosecute. And that emergence of the independent check and balance that a judge's involvement represents is, is uh, I can't quite frankly be overstated, <clears throat> and the particular relevance of a warrant relative to a court order under the Stored Communications Act is just the standard under which the court evaluates the request. All right. Now, uh, the Carpenter decision did seem to leave open some question about um, what sort of request would require a warrant. It, it's not blanket. It's, for instance, it was kind of applied to long histories or uh older history, but it seemed to stop short of things like, you know, maybe very short, like very recent history, or perhaps even real-time data. Uh, 
What do you think about that? You know, we would like to see a warrant requirement applicable in any of these instances. Uh, the chief's opinion explicitly disclaims the applicability of this rule to real-time surveillance. And the basis for that basically is you could think of it as moving in two directions. On the one hand, real-time surveillance might be more uh, potentially protective of public safety. And it's also uh, somewhat, actually a lot, less privacy revealing than a historical dossier. You know, one of the concerns in this case precisely was that over the course, I think, of the uh, several months of the subscribers' cell information uh, that the government requested were hundreds, um, even potentially thousands of location points, you know, which is mm -hmm. to say not only can you map where this person was, but even the particular time at which they were there, and not just at a particular time, but over a whole series of particular times and the construction of one's whereabouts over an extended period of time, the Supreme Court has recognized before, for instance, in U.S. versus Jones, which was a GPS tracking case, uh, different from this one with respect to the particular technology, uh, but similar to this one with respect to implicating the privacy over historical location information. Um, in that case, too, the court was very concerned about looking back into time to reconstruct a person's whereabouts, uh, whereas a, a, a less, uh, a shorter time period is simply less privacy invasive. For instance, one of the things about uh, Mr. Carpenter, which uh, authorities were able to determine by looking at his cell site location information, was that he was a fairly regular churchgoer. Mm. And they even knew the denomination of the church that he prayed <laughs> at, which is to say that his faith was then known to the authorities, right. even though nobody ever satisfied a judge that that information was in any way material to the investigation they were pursuing. Right. And, you know, and what I think strikes me about these sorts of things and where we're heading now with all these kind of, with, with these cases in the in the current state of affairs is it wasn't that long ago that surveillance you know actually required a human asset you know someone had to stake out a house or tail a suspect or actually had to physically place a bug or a tracking device you know uh, it, it required a human you know a human being and because of that it was naturally self-limiting right I mean, the, you know law enforcement and whatever only had a certain number of assets so they they, they were limited by that with smartphones today we basically now voluntarily carry a device that allows all those things to happen remotely and with effectively, as you said, infinite history. That's right. It, it just a couple of things there. You know, one, it is, I think, widely underappreciated just how often a cell phone might report one's location. Every time you use the phone to make a call or receive a call or check a website or send an email or receive an email, at every one of those points, a set of cell towers locates, you know, triangulates your, your relative uh, location. And so these records, the historical cell site location information, is incredibly revealing simply because of the sheer frequency with which people use our phones and the variety of things that we might use our phones for. Anything that requires a phone to talk to a cell tower tracks and drops a, a location information data point. Um, there's... Uh, well, lots of things to say here, but you know, one, one piece I'd particularly focus on is that these protections for privacy don't just stand for privacy, right? Privacy is not the only value implicated here. Among the reasons that civil libertarians are so concerned about privacy is our government's repeated recurring uh, efforts to undermine it, hmm. not just generally, but specifically in the context of undermining and suppressing dissent. You know, the, the Fourth Amendment's protections for privacy <clears throat> hold a crucial role in defending our First Amendment rights of speech right. and assembly and press and petition the government for redress of grievances. Without privacy, the opportunities for dissent to emerge diminish, and which is to say it's not either the First or the Fourth Amendment merely that we are concerned about here. Ultimately, it is democracy itself that these values protect. And if you, you know, play that out in... in uh, you know, so let's say to a particular hypothetical concrete context, um, you know, at the moment around the country, activists are occupying ICE offices because they are concerned about the uh, uh, immigration enforcement initiatives right. of the Trump administration. If six months from now, uh, any of those individuals involved in the occupations, uh, if their historical location was known to the government, that could essentially, without a need to establish to a judge, the, the importance of the information to a criminal investigation, all those people could be uh, effectively at risk to be uh, identified retroactively. 
if there were any particular protest that the government wanted to inter, you know, rewind the tape to see who <laughs> right. was at the meeting where it was planned. This kind of rule uh, in Carpenter is, is precisely what prevents the government from being able to retrospectively create dossiers of activists in order to suppress their speech, as our government has repeatedly done in our nation's history. I think that's a part that people forget when they look at these yeah. kinds of decisions and these kinds of uh, uh, government powers, what often hits the floor is the memory of the history of COINTELPRO or the Palmer Raids or the McCarthy era, uh, when official government policy served the purposes not of promoting the free speech for which our country is, uh, you know, rightfully vaunted around the world, but rather to suppress it. And, and that's exactly why we're uh, so uh, enthused that the Carpenter decision forces government investigators to go before judges if they want to get very sensitive information reaching back into the past to connect people at particular points in time to particular places. You, the government, should should have to go to a judge first and say, this is why we need this, uh, and, and make that case. So, as you said, it, technically speaking, our smartphones are required to know where we are, where our current whereabouts are, because that, you know, in order to deliver a phone call to us or emails or text messages, it has to know what cell tower to feed those to to get them to your device. But, and I've worked actually as a software engineer in the telecom industry, basically all my professional life, but. So you probably know a lot more about this than I do, <laughs> at least that part of it. Yeah. But what, what gets me though, is that that information does that information doesn't need to be recorded and saved at least not longer than your billing cycle uh so mm. is there any legal reasons why companies have to save this data is there any sort of precedent for you know these these companies must save this information in, in case it's needed later unfortunately recently there there have been uh laws to that effect the stored communications act is is one that gives the government access to communications information that has been retained one affirmative mandate for companies to retain uh, information along these lines, at least metadata about cell phone calls, is the USA Freedom Act. Now, one reason that might be uh, less bad than it sounds is that by requiring companies to keep that data, what the USA Freedom Act particularly did was prohibit the government from keeping mm -hmm. that data directly, which is what it did for the better part of a decade. Hmm. Uh, it was the Snowden disclosures that basically <laughs> blew the lid off of that data retention. And it was responding to the Snowden disclosures that Congress adopted the USA Freedom Act, which forced the data collection around this information from the NSA, particularly to the telecom companies. So at the same time that USA Freedom expanded transparency before the secret FISA court, uh, and limited the government's direct retention of records, it did um, uh, allow this mandate for private data collection. So I'm uh, glad you brought that up because I was going to bring that up too. The, um, does, any, does, does the Carpenter decision have any bearing whatsoever on some of the programs that were um, unveiled by Edward Snowden? Or, if, for instance, I just saw, there's been some articles just this week about the NSA basically saying, oh, oops, we accidentally saved a whole bunch of records that we weren't supposed to. Don't worry about it. We'll delete them. I don't know how that even came to light and how they agreed to do that, but so we're, we've been talking about maybe law enforcement here, but from from a CIA NSA perspective, does Carpenter have any bearing on on those programs? So not directly. The Chief Justice's opinion in the Carpenter decision was very explicit that it aimed to be a limited decision, and on its face, it is. That said, the implications of the decision could be quite vast. So, you know, we, for instance, at EFF, have multiple lawsuits at the moment challenging the NSA's co-optation of the internet as a tool for global surveillance. The principles that the Carpenter decision alludes to absolutely will be supportive in our efforts in that context to limit government surveillance. Does the case directly speak to those contexts? No. Are the principles implicated? Yes. Uh, and so, like a lot of law, uh, you know, the, the struggle will be essentially to analogize across cases and to draw those comparisons between the contexts. On the one hand, uh, the warrant requirement uh, that was vindicated in the Carpenter decision, if extended into Internet surveillance by national security agencies, could by itself end the era of mass surveillance of the American public and the rest of the world. Um, does this decision by the Supreme Court require the next court to evaluate that set of circumstances to reach that, reach that decision? Unfortunately, no. Um, all that notwithstanding, there are a couple things to also take away from this decision, though. One of them is that 
Chief Justice John Roberts is willing to recognize uh, mm. the need for the government to establish its case. And that in itself can be very significant because he hasn't always been a swing justice. Uh, and quite frankly, to see him voting with the moderate justices, uh, to me, was something of a surprise. And so at that layer of abstraction, you know, does the chiefs being the justice to basically decide this case and write the opinion, does that have an implication for future challenges to the NSA uh, and, and other intelligence agencies dragnets? Potentially, it very well might. Uh, I think that this is uh, an, an interesting and to me very surprising indication of the chief's uh, willingness, as as you would hope in a justice of the Supreme Court, to maintain some skepticism of the executive branch that he himself is a veteran of. Uh, before before John Roberts came to the court, he served as a lawyer in the Justice Department, and so to see him now wearing his judicial robes, willing to limit the power of his former colleagues, that to me is a very encouraging in indication, even if it is entirely premature to suggest that it necessarily portends an end to any of the programs that, that Snowden revealed. Um, and maybe another way to think about that is that one way in which Edward Snowden's revelations really impacted the American body politic was not just by law. It did ultimately cue the Congress to enact the USA Freedom Act, and so it was that influential, but it was more influential merely than that, particularly by enabling a discourse a cultural discourse, and that's you know mediated in everything from news articles to op-eds to protests to dinner table conversations, and and I think that without the Snowden disclosures and the discourse that it enabled, you know it's not clear to me necessarily that the court would be in a position to reach this kind of result. This is the kind of result that reflects not just I think the arguments before the court, but also a wide-ranging and ongoing cultural conversation, including artists, including teachers, including students. And I think that the, the Snowden revelations were more influential than I think we might give them credit for. And maybe while not directly uh, involved in enabling this case, I think it may have been indirectly uh, involved in preparing the justices to consider what does the Fourth Amendment mean in an age of advancing technology. Yeah, yeah. And, and whenever Snowden comes up. It's so polarizing in a lot of cases, but it, you know, I, I, whenever it comes up in conversation with friends, I'm always like, okay, separate, separate the act from the information. I mean, you know, you can you can debate what he did was. I'm sure technically it was illegal. Uh, you know, I don't know where, and you're the lawyer here, but I don't know where whistleblowing comes into play. But set that aside, and just you know, it's just important to understand what what was revealed because I think prior to that, so many people just kind of wrote it off as, oh, that's all tinfoil hat, black helicopter stuff. You know, surely, surely. Our government wouldn't do that, <laughs> right? So if nothing, and else, unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Well, and there's an interesting eddy here. People forget what the Supreme Court did in the weeks preceding the Snowden revelations. One way to explain when he did what he did was that he was responding to the Supreme Court in the spring of 2013, just a few weeks before the revelations that, that gripped the international press. The Supreme Court, in a case, Clapper versus Amnesty International, James Clapper was the director mm -hmm. of national intelligence at the time, uh, it, it basically decided that the courts could not rule on constitutional challenges to mass surveillance because no one was able to produce documents proving <laughs> that they were being monitored. And so what did Snowden do as a government contractor aware of all this? He said, okay, I'm going to give 300 million Americans standing to challenge this program now. And that's what he did. He discreetly expanded the rights of that many Americans who now have the opportunity to go to court because we can prove that we have been among other people you know, targeted, uh. not targeted, but uh, uh, monitored through uh, through these government programs. There, there's another way to look about this, which with respect to skepticism of authority. Mm. Uh, you know, there is a wide running, wide, um, widely spread canard. I think that patriotism means rooting for the executive branch or whoever's in power, and nothing could be further from the truth in this constitutional republic. Our country was founded in acts of resistance <laughs> to executive power them being embedded in the Constitution means that our republic is defined around its checks and balances and the limits on our government. Uh, and so, if anything, patriotism today is embedded in dissent. It's embedded in transparency, and it's certainly reflected when people give up personally lucrative careers to inform the public about secret facts that 
the agencies funded by our tax dollars hide from us out of their own political self-interest. I mean, I, I think that there's really no case to be made that what Snowden did in any way was <clears throat> unpatriotic. It was illegal, but let's be clear, so were the occupations um, you know, when when when, uh, when when Martin Luther King Jr. and his allies were marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, you know that was an illegal act. Right. Uh, there there are plenty of acts that uh, that that advance justice in the United States that were formally illegal because the justice system very narrowly was written to protect only some interests rather than the broader ones that have informed our nation over. Uh, over longer spans of time. And, and so I would just say that this decision fits very well in that context of evolving justice over time, informed by the actions that we the people take. Yeah, exactly. That's an excellent point. And, you know, things are only illegal till they're uh, illegal and vice versa. And I, I always love to tell my daughters, you know, just because something is legal doesn't make it right. And just because something's illegal doesn't mean it wrong. Um, Slavery was illegal for hundreds <laughs> of years in the United States. Correct. All right. So there's two, two other areas of applicability I wanted to explore real quickly um, before we move yeah. on. So, um, what about the notion of stingrays? Now, for, for the audience, uh, the mm. st stingray is this uh, fake cell tower device. Uh, can be as small as a briefcase, um, where this device pretends to be a cell tower, tries to get cell phones in the area to attach to it, to connect to it, so that it can collect information on those phones. Does in fact, there was, I think there's recent studies that somebody found a whole bunch of these things all over Washington, D.C. Now, I don't know if they were ours mm -hmm. or someone else's or both, but is there any applicability uh, proper to the stingrays? In fact, is there anything in the law yet about the use of stingrays? So it's not, uh, the, my answer here will be relatively similar to my one about the NSA programs revealed by Snowden. The case does not directly impact them, but it does have potential uh, implications. They would be indirect, and let me, let me unpack that. On the one hand, a stingray is like a cell tower in the fact that it mimics it to your phone. Um, on the other hand, though, there's a big difference here because the cell site location information that the telephone companies collect uh, is just the metadata, and it's collected by the company. When I talk to audiences sometimes about cell site simulators like Stingrays, there's a laugh line that says you get free data because it's the government <laughs> who's providing it. Um, but those aren't cell site location information records. You know, I mean, they, they, they're analogous right. to them, but they're not records held by the companies that the companies will then be seeking access to. That's information held by law enforcement directly. Now, with respect to the law on cell site simulators, there um, it's evolving. There are several states, of which California is one of at least half a dozen, that have required state and local law enforcement to secure warrants in order to use a cell site simulator. Similarly, federal agencies, under a Department of Justice memorandum uh, that dates to the Obama administration, are also constrained from using cell site simulators without warrants. Now, there are some implications to that, one of them. It was probably a year ago that I got a call from a reporter in Detroit who had a warrant application from a federal agency only because the Obama administration late in its tenure required the agencies to seek these warrants. And that's the only way that we discovered the use of a cell site simulator mm. in Detroit to track an undocumented immigrant. Um, that was uh, the summer of 2017. Uh, and we wouldn't have known that otherwise. Um, there's a further piece here with respect to the cell site simulators. P forgive me the indulgence. So uh, Stingrays were the first generation of those tools. That's what they called, that was the brand name of the cell site simulator mm -hmm. that law enforcement was using almost two decades ago. Oh, wow. And since then, the tools have evolved dramatically. The newest versions, st uh, Stingrays were a version of the tool that could simply listen. The latest version of the cell site simulators used by law enforcement can not only detect and capture information through a cell phone transmission, they can hack a phone, they can plant malware on phones, mm. they can deny service to phones entirely. There are all kinds of offensive capabilities that cell site simulators after the Stingray models included. And then the last piece here, the first time any civilian heard about Stingrays, was when a person convicted of credit card fraud conducted his own investigation trying to figure out how the government caught him <laughs> because he, as far as he knew, had managed not to be detectable through any other previously known technologies. It was through his independent work as a jailhouse lawyer that judges became aware of Stingrays for the first time. These were devices that the FBI required local law enforcement not to talk about in public, <laughs> even at the cost of lying to judges or walking away from otherwise right, legitimate... Yeah. Um, prosecutions. The first known deployment of a stingray in the United States, we now know in the fullness of time, 
happened to be in the context of a First Amendment protected demonstration that I participated in. Oh, wow. In 2003 in Miami, this was a, a, a protest by environmentalists and labor organizers challenging a corporate free trade agreement. Uh, that one was called the Free Trade Area of the Americas, and it was, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership more recently, uh, an object of concern about corporate interests mm -hmm. undermining labor and environmental standards. And that was an, that was an action. I, I would participated in it literally the day before I learned that I passed the California bar exam <laughs> after uh, graduating from law school that spring. And then 10 years later, we discover oh, wow. that, that that protest was monitored by military technology that local law enforcement was using without a warrant. And so that was a long way of saying, unfortunately, <laughs> stingrays are still in the pipeline to be appropriately regulated. Many states, again, including California, have adopted in, uh, for instance, in California, the law is the California Electronic Communications Privacy Act, CAL-ECPA. And, and it, like the other states that have enacted similar laws, um, it, it imposes a warrant requirement for the use of tools like cell site simulators. But at the federal level, the, no such uh, principle has yet emerged through, the, um, through Congress or through the federal courts. <clears throat> yeah, and that is an excellent point that it, in these cases, we don't even know what's going on because there is no transparency uh, right. th that would be triggered by some of these privacy, some of these privacy laws. So that's why I just to come back to that. That's one reason why I do think Snowden's disclosures were so influential indirectly for this case, because the transparency precludes news cycles. Tra uh, pardon me. Secrecy precludes news cycles. Secrecy precludes conversations. Secrecy yeah. precludes discourse. Transparency enables discourse news cycles and i think those are that's among the <clears throat> crucial grists in the mill the cultural mill that the supreme court uh, one hopes refines into evolving jurisprudence and then representative democracy i mean how how can how can we possibly elect the right representatives and come up with the right set of laws and regulations if the the populace if the citizenry that are, who are voting aren't aware of what's going on i think that's exactly right in one case in point there just to note after Snowden's disclosures, one of the principal uh, protagonists of the USA Freedom Act, which attempted to limit the secrecy of government surveillance, was among the original authors of the Patriot Act himself, the Republican James Sensenbrenner, who was the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Republican from Wisconsin. He was aghast at what he learned of the government's implementation of his own signature legislation <laughs> from the whistleblower who gave up his career to inform him. Uh, and I think that, you know, the fact that Congress responded to those disclosures uh, suggests their uh, the legitimacy of the underlying effort in making that information transparent to the public. And it suggests that, to your point, um, that policymakers and the public need to know facts in order to make informed decisions. And the more of this information that remains secret, the less capable are our political branches, or our, for that matter, the courts, in making the decisions necessary to, to meaningfully breathe life into the rights and principles that, that we all care so much about and I think are increasingly um, uh, learning not to take for granted. So let's get deep here. Why, why is it? That our laws just cannot seem to keep up keep up with technological changes is that just is that just the nature of a constitutional legal system and you know in the face of rapid change is it just not meant to be that responsive or are we not wording our laws better I mean could, could we just be are, are, are the laws too focused and they're not general enough to handle you know being future proofed I will hear uh I will, I will make a disclaimer as I answer this question just to say that this that my answer to that question will not necessarily reflect an EFF perspective, but <laughs> okay. this is my perspective as a, as a, as a lawyer activist. Uh, I think part of what you're asking about implicates the composition of the judiciary. Mm -hmm. If we had judges who were concerned about rights and liberties, the common law would respond as technology evolves. But, you know, we don't live in an age where the American uh, judicial system is particularly concerned about those issues. You know, the, the judges in the federal system um, over generations have been, you know, disproportionately prosecutors, disproportionately mm. judicial formalists, disproportionately uh, jur jurists who ignore the social consequences of their rulings, you know, who approach the law as if it were this abstract thing um, that was by default deferential to the government, absent some hmm. uh, compelling showing otherwise. And there, you know, the, the judges of the of the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was a very different breed. 
You know, those were judges who you saw, for instance, in the Miranda decision, recognizing that because people didn't know their rights, their rights were not effective in creating an affirmative mandate mm. for police to inform people about their rights. Think about that kind of decision yeah. relative to the kind of jurisprudence we have today. Uh, so it's not the case that, that our, our legal system is inherently incapable of responding to technological change. It's because the, the judges have been replaced with uh, others who tend to be deferential to the government. And as the technology emerges, those jurisprudential, conservative jurisprudential activists often find any excuse to justify the government's otherwise in the, the just the, the government's invasion of privacy interests that otherwise would be recognized. And, and let's just rewind the tape to make this concrete. Smith versus Maryland is one of the cases that established the third party doctrine and its applicability to telecom companies. In that case, there's there's no reason necessarily in retrospect uh, for Smith versus Maryland to stand in for all of the things it was subsequently cited for. But in the 1970s, when the justices were looking at this case and deciding, uh, does the fact that uh, the government was monitoring this person uh, using the telephone system without a warrant, is that a problem? The justices said no, because he'd given his information to the to the phone company. Uh, you know, it took the 40 years since that decision uh, for the courts basically to grow educated about mm. what does that decision mean. And so it's it's some combination of judicial ignorance, um, whether intentional or otherwise. Um, and, and, and also, the and it is fair to say that the pace of the technology is moving very quickly. And, you know, if we had younger judges or judges who were themselves more attuned mm -hmm. to the technology, maybe we'd be finding other uh, results. But at the end of the day, judges serve for life, and a lot of them are not from a generation that has any facility over the terms, let alone the tools. Um, and lest that be a call for youth on the bench, I just also note that, you know, the... Um, because judges serve for life, it's important. It's important to get it right. And, and all this is to say, you no. Know, I'm saying this in the context of an open vacant or a soon to be open vacancy yes. on the Supreme Court. And I certainly don't want anyone to internalize the the, the message that we just need to fill all the all the roles because that's not true. The legitimacy of judges is crucial, and we should have judges and certainly justices of the Supreme Court who represent a mainstream jurisprudential view shared by the American people and across the political continuum. That has not been the case. Uh, for uh, many of the latest justices appointed to the bench, you know, Justice Roberts, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, uh, um, all of them have uh, fairly demonstrable records of deference to corporate interests, yeah. um, and, which is one reason why it's so, uh, and government interests, which is one reason it's so surprising, quite frankly, to see the chief writing this opinion. Um, I would describe it as somewhat out of his uh, jurisprudential uh, character to uh, vindicate individual rights vis-a-vis -vis a, a government power. Um, but I think that's another thing that makes this, this case so, so important is that it portends, uh, you know, the, the, the question in my mind is how far is the chief willing to go? And, and that's ultimately implicated in several of your questions. You know, what are the implications for cell site simulators or the NSA dragnet for this case? Well, I mean, very discreetly, the question is, what does John Roberts think about it? <laughs> and it will probably take us any number of years to find out. But this this decision, the Carpenter decision, at least suggests that uh, he is willing to support privacy in some instances here, in instances where the government is able to construct a long-term uh, historical dossier connecting a person to particular places at particular times. At least that, he agrees, the government should get a warrant to get. What else does John Roberts think the government should get a warrant to uh, secure? And I, you know, I'm as curious as you are. <laughs> so, one thing this obviously doesn't cover is the, the these private companies. You know, well, rights may be a strong word, but the, we've signed up for these services. We've signed away our rights through end user license agreements and and all of these sorts of things. There's no, there's nothing in this ruling that prevents them from collecting it for their own uses and selling them to other third parties for profit. Um, obviously, right. obviously that there's been a lot of that in the news as well. And certainly this administration has been rolling back a lot of protections that were either in place or set to take place from the previous administration that would protect, uh, privacy and, and, and start to protect your data that Vermont and California now have, uh, implemented some privacy bills, um, and privacy laws. 
but there really is. I mean, as far as, for, you know, stepping away from the, the law enforcement aspects of this, there's really, there is no right to privacy in the Constitution, at least not directly. Um, do we That's need right. at this point, do we do we need a constitutional amendment to make this thing happen? Or is, are we just going to kind of go piecemeal by state laws and hopefully someday get some federal privacy laws like GDPR? What, what do you see as, as the evolution on the, on the, the corporate, private, non-legal side of this? Uh-huh. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, it is, <clears throat> there are lots of ways uh, for laws to get made, and a constitutional amendment is one of them, but it's probably the most, in fact, it is the most procedurally demanding process that right. the Constitution sets be. forth. Indeed, right, because you're changing the, the charter, essentially. But at the end of the day, short of that, there's lots of other ways for these rights to be protected. Uh, one of them, you know, we've been talking about a court decision, the the recognition of a right to privacy was was a decision by the Supreme Court in the 1970s, uh, recognizing a penumbra that while the word privacy isn't written in the Constitution, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, others among uh, the Bill of Rights construct, they insinuate mm. a right to privacy. And, and, and the court has held uh, that the right to privacy does constrain the government from doing any number of things, uh, like, for instance, getting without a warrant access to your historical location information from your cell phone company or other decisions too. I mean, the, the entire line of reproductive rights cases is grounded ultimately in a privacy right that the court has inferred through a penumbra, um, <clears throat> which is to say it certainly has historical valence, that recognition of privacy in the courts, notwithstanding the absence of the word from the text. Uh, beyond that, though, you know, between the court recognizing these rights, federal statutes are, I would say, in this arena, somewhat long overdue. For instance, the, the Congress acted in the 1970s to try to take the federal government out of the business of domestic surveillance. That law was called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Mm -hmm. It's still on the books, but it's been revised and watered down so substantially that the latest amendments in 2009 actually legalized yeah. the mass surveillance <laughs> operations that Snowden revealed, which right. is to say federal statutes can be updated, but in being updated, they also can drop privacy lower rather than merely updating it. And so, and, you know, the crucial explanation, I think, for why Congress was able to do that in 2009 was the secrecy that protected the agencies from having to defend their, you know, increasingly right. authoritarian powers. And as we were just saying a minute ago, with Snowden's revelations and the subsequent discourse that enabled the political will to force Congress to act in the USA Freedom Act to start chipping away at that secrecy. Ultimately, in, in my mind, as I look at this equation going forward, the question is not which branch Congress or the courts does the recognition of privacy emerge from, but rather how many news cycles can the American people see to force hmm. attention to this issue that otherwise slips beneath the, the the zone of attention only with discourse will the institutions respond and and ultimately that implicates neither congress nor the courts nor the executive branch but rather the fourth branch which is to say the the press and the media right. i think ultimately that's the driver um of of, of what happens here I, I would love to make one further point there with respect to that uh importance of news cycles the the front line in the battle to stop mass surveillance, it's neither in the courts where we are fighting the cases to challenge the NSA dragnets, nor in Congress. I wouldn't even say it's federal policy at all. It's at city councils and mm. county boards across the country where local police departments use tools like cell site simulators, usually without a warrant. And if we are serious about recovering uh, a meaningful right to privacy, notwithstanding the expansion of the technology to which the government has access, it is at the most local level that our opportunities are most ripe. And just across the, the Bay, uh, here in the Bay Area, Oakland, California, recently adopted a law, the first of its kind of that strength around the country. There are other jurisdictions, Somerville, Massachusetts, Seattle, Washington, uh, Santa Clara County, California, that have adopted versions of the law recently adopted in Oakland, but it ultimately subjects surveillance by local authorities to public oversight and community control. And I think that model is ultimately one of the most important in this arena, because what that model will do is ensure news cycles and ensure public conversations. It will force local electeds to grapple with these questions. And by doing that, it will enable a cultural and a political conversation that's been uh, suppressed for entirely too long. 
Well, I, whenever this comes up, and, I, and invariably when I'm talking with my friends, they say, oh, you know, I got nothing to hide. I don't, what do I care if they're reading my emails? I mean, I got nothing. You know, I'm talking to my wife about what groceries to pick up, right? And it, you know, so every, it, and, I, and I always refer people, and I don't know how, how many of them actually go do it, to, is to watch Glenn Greenwald's TED Talk on privacy because it's, I think people equate privacy with, you know, some doing something bad, doing something wrong. And it's not right. that it's not that at all. I mean, you know, why do you close the door to the bathroom when you go in there? Why do you have opaque walls right. on your house? You know, why, you know, there are things that you do. You know, why do you sing only in the shower? There are things that we do as human beings that require, you know, some level of privacy to either explore or, to, you know, kind of express ourselves in ways we might not do in public. You know, there's lots of things. And I always love Snowden's quote on that, which is, you know, just he, he said, you know, just because, you know, saying you, you, you know, you don't care about the right to privacy because you've got nothing to hide is the same as saying, I don't care about the freedom of speech because I have nothing to say. It's, it's right. not about you. It's not about this one instance. It's about the society. It's about democracy. It's, it's bigger than that. Yes. I, I, one way I put that is that there is a difference between the private value of privacy and the public value of privacy. Mm. The private value of privacy is our individual subjective interests and in not being seen. And so that might explain, for instance, why you close the door when you use the restroom. But there is a public value to the right as well, and it particularly looks like this. In a country which has repeatedly vilified dissent and used surveillance to undermine dissent while claiming democracy as our founding principle, uh, we have to protect privacy in order to enable the dissent to make our democracy meaningful mm. and that you know that recasts privacy as a thing that we each enjoy to being a thing that we enjoy together yeah and 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 a crucial enabler of the democratic principles that that, that make us the republic rather than you know authoritarian government uh you know that and I, I take this back just a little while ago i think we were talking about how the values that surveillance offends are not just privacy, they include dissent. And, and, the, and the crucial piece for people to recognize there is if you feel, or any of your readers or listeners feel like they have nothing to hide, at the end of the day, that's not the question. The question is, does your neighbor feel safe expressing their opinion? And if the answer is no, and there I can point to you know millions of neighbors in the United States who do not feel safe at the yeah. moment expressing their opinions, if the answer to that question is no, then it's not your rights or your privacy that we have to be worried about. It's your neighbor's privacy. And mm -hmm. because without your neighbor having privacy, you, we, all of us, we don't get to have democracy. We only have meaningful democracy if everybody can speak. There, there's a, one other parallel gloss here to think about. The First Amendment doesn't just protect your right to speak. It protects your right to hear. Mm. And if your neighbors are self-censoring because they fear government monitoring, mm. it's not just their right to speak that's undermined. I mean, you are left in the dark because right. you could be informed by something that your neighbor otherwise has something to say. Uh, and that, that's a, uh, an aspect of the way that surveillance, privacy, and democracy relate that I think people often forget. Yeah. All right, so I know you got to get going, and, and and but I want to wrap up with. I always try to leave on some sort of a positive note, some sort of an action item. Uh, so yeah. specifically, is there anything you can recommend that you, that people, our listeners, might do to help to improve their their location privacy? Are there is there anything they should avoid doing? Any carriers or service providers, manufacturers, anything they should be doing? Any you know apps they should or should not be using? Can we opt out? You know, what, what kind of specific advice might you give uh, the listeners for helping to bump up their privacy? I'll give you a couple answers in the technology arena, and then I'll give you a couple answers in the sort of civic arena. Okay. So with respect to technology, a lot of people don't realize that if you get divorced, every Google search you've ever made in your life is potentially discoverable to the court. Um, that can be a really unnerving process to, uh, prospect to contemplate. There are alternatives to uh, corporate search engines that don't track your search history. Alternatives like, for instance, DuckDuckGo. Mm -hmm. There are alternatives to corporate social media platforms that don't aim to monetize all of your expressions <laughs> and your preferences to sell to advertisers. You know, two open source alternatives include Diaspora or Mastodon. Um, you know, the, the idea that we engage the internet increasingly through corporate platforms is part of the vulnerability here. And so yeah. people who want to use leverage technology to protect their privacy, I would say look for free and open source alternatives, uh, ones that have open code that you don't have to trust some corporate entity about 
what it does. In the civic arena, some of the most powerful things that you can do involve talking to your neighbors. Um, the program that I run at EFF is called the Electronic Frontier Alliance and is a network mm. of uh, dozens of grassroots groups, hackerspaces, student groups, community organizations around the country that are pulling people together in real space in their respective communities to learn more about these issues and to raise their voices. If you live in a state that doesn't yet require a warrant for police to use cell site simulators, you know, go to your state legislator, whoever represents you in the state assembly and your state senate, and say, I want a law like California's that's going to protect my privacy as much as somebody who lives in Los Angeles. Like, why is it the Californians have more privacy than most of the country. It's because our state legislature has done something here. Most states, again, have not. And, and the last thing I'd say is uh, show up at the city council hearings of wherever you live, because at the local level are the greatest opportunities to impact these questions. And, and also, quite frankly, a lot of the most alarming oversight, uh, absences <laughs> of oversight happen at the local level. So lots of opportunities. If your listeners are interested in getting more information or connecting with us, at EFF, I would welcome anyone to uh, visit EFF.org. If you're interested in the local organizing opportunities, visit EFF.org slash EFA for Electronic Frontier Alliance, and I'll give you an email address. Anyone who wants to learn more about these issues or seek EFF support in taking action in your respective communities, please don't hesitate to email us at organizing at EFF.org. We'd be thrilled to hear from you. Awesome, and I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. Uh, it's been wonderful and very enlightening talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned a lot today and had a good time doing it. So uh, appreciate it, and maybe we'll get together and talk again in the future. You're very kind. I welcome that. Uh, thanks so much for the great questions, and keep up the great work. Thanks. What a really great discussion. I really enjoyed that. I want to thank Shahid Batar for coming on one more time uh, from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And one thing I was going to mention uh, that I that I forgot to mention during the interview is it's it, it is important for you to get out there and get involved and to go to those town halls and to make sure that even at the very local level you're paying attention to who you're uh, who you're electing and what their positions are on these privacy topics. Um, but if you're a busy person like most of us are, uh, and you can't get out there and you know go to all these things personally. Uh, give money to the people who do this stuff all the time, uh, day in, day out basis, like the EFF, um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. These guys do great, great work, uh, all on our behalf. And, uh, so if you can't get there and do it yourself, you know, give it to money people who do, uh, or do both. Uh, any, every little bit helps. Make sure you're sending some donations to these groups. Uh, some other groups you might want to consider are, uh, EPIC, the Electronic Privacy Information Center. And, of course, the uh, ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, these groups are out there doing really great work, and they're out protecting your rights and fighting really hard. So, again, if you can't get out there and do it yourselves, or I guess even if you can, um, also consider sending these guys some uh, some donations. Every little bit helps. And on a more personal note, I've got some interesting news coming up about the, uh, the book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Stay tuned a little bit later for that. I'll keep you up to date. Uh, of course, as always, you can go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there, which comes out every couple of weeks, uh, often in conjunction with uh, the same tips on the show, but sometimes different topics as well. And, uh, you know, some people just like getting that in their in inbox where they can actually click on links more easily and see pictures and that sort of thing. So if that's your thing, sign up for the email uh, newsletter and also uh, recommend that maybe to some friends and family as well. You can get some, uh, find one of your favorite uh, newsletter episodes and send it off to them and see if they might want to consider joining as well. You can follow me on Twitter, which is at Firewall Dragons. Uh, that tends to be more up-to-date, urgent stuff. It also tends to be a little bit more technical. Um, but if you want to, you know, keep up with the latest and greatest, that's where I try to do most of that kind of work. Of course, you can always buy the book itself on Amazon.com, Firewall Stone Stop Dragons, with uh, all sorts of great info. If not for yourself, maybe for somebody else. Um, it's It's got over 100 different tips in it and step-by-step uh, -step instructions and uh, explains everything you need to know. And if you don't want to know that part, you can just go straight to the checklist and just start marking them down. So uh, plenty of options for you there. And that's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, another great discussion, another great interview. i got more shows coming up with some, some other great um, interviewees. So stay tuned. And uh, until next week, everybody, stay safe and don't get caught with your drop down. down.